The Australian Society of Plastic Surgeons has submitted an application to the federal government to provide gender-affirming surgeries to transgender people in Australia under the Medicare Benefits Scheme. Dr Nicola Dean, the current president of the Australian Society of Plastic Surgeons, joins us today in the studio. Dr Dean has a long-standing interest in access to healthcare and in addition to her work towards improving access to gender-affirming surgeries, she has spent many years campaigning for improved access to post-mastectomy breast reconstruction and breast reduction surgery, as well as previously working to improve the services at the Royal Darwin Hospital. Thanks for joining us today, Nicola. Just to get us started, how many gender-affirming surgeries are performed across Australia? Um, thanks for that, Ash. Look, it's, it's actually quite hard to know because one of the problems that we have is um, that there's really not good data. So the, there's often not good coding of gender-affirming surgeries um, through the MBS or through other um, ways of collecting information. What we know is is that the number of people that are wanting to have these surgeries compared to the number of people that can access them is really out of balance. Um, so we know that some of these surgeries are going on through private hospitals with MBS items, but we don't really know how many are, are occurring across Australia at the moment. How does having access to these gender-affirming surgeries improve the lives of trans people? Yeah, look, I think that what we now know from the peer-reviewed literature is that gender-affirming surgery is really helpful for trans people uh, in terms of improving their health, and that is mental health, um, body image, um, and basically overall general health. And the reason that we know that is that there are now some good studies from other countries uh, that demonstrate significant improvements in what we call patient-reported outcomes measures. So patient-reported outcomes measures are sort of very structured questionnaires that look at people's health and they're, they're validated and fairly reliable and you can do them at different time points. So you can do them pre-surgery and then following surgery and you can see quite dramatic improvements. Uh, people find that they um, are able to function better in society if they can access um, the surgery uh, that they see as being part of their, um, what, what people call their gender journey, I suppose. Um, and it, it's not that these surgeries are for everybody that is trans. And I think what's really important to note is that uh, you have to have a patient-centred approach looking at the individual goals of that individual trans person because some trans people just choose to uh, express their gender identity through a social uh, transition or through 
you know, pronouns and clothes and hair and all of those things. Some people uh, find that hormone treatment is very helpful and some people um, really feel that they need uh, surgical procedures as part of their uh, transition to their uh, lived gender identity. So, Nicola, if this is so important, why hasn't it been provided under Medicare before? Um, Look, I think it's for a variety of reasons. I think there have been taboos in society about um, trans people and transgender surgery. And I think different cultures in the world have handled that differently. Um, But Australia has a good healthcare system uh, that looks at the medical evidence for procedures. And I think we're very lucky to have that. And so now there is much stronger medical evidence out there that these procedures should be provided. Then I'm hopeful that the Australian healthcare system will uh, rectify the, the lack of access um, that's been there for so long. Some people are concerned that making gender-affirming care easier to access will result in more people doing it who don't actually need it and who will later regret it. Is this true? Yeah, I think that that's a fear um, amongst some people in the community. And it's often people that don't know any trans people and it's often people that have not necessarily worked in this area. And and it's a perfectly understandable concern. I think what is important is that there are um, rigour around making sure that somebody genuinely does have what they call gender incongruence, uh, which is the, the sort of mismatch between the gender that they've been assigned at birth and the gender that they um, identify with. And having a diagnosis of gender incongruence is something that um, there are more doctors in the community feeling confident uh, with. So uh, quite a lot of um, GPs are now... um, much more familiar with the idea of gender incongruence and how to confidently uh, make sure that there's not some other problem that's, you know, looking a bit like gender incongruence. Um, So there are also the sexual health physicians um, and some endocrinologists are managing these sorts of things all the time and they can make sure that this is not something that is a different condition. Um, It it really is gender incongruence. So I think as long as there are those robust systems around um, making sure that it's not a different condition that's looking a bit like gender incongruence, um, then I think that it's a safe thing to do. Uh, we do know that um, the rates of regretting deciding to have surgery 
are very, very small. They're very tiny, much lower than uh, most other surgeries. Um, and I know that from talking to um, the the researcher in the Netherlands um, who who's looked at all this stuff in detail. And again, there's lots of stuff published in the medical literature about that now. Not everyone considers gender-affirming care or surgeries to be needed. So if we're providing these surgeries under Medicare, do we then need to provide other plastic surgeries under it as well? Yeah. Look, um, the the cutoff between what is uh, acceptable for public funding and what's not deemed to be appropriate for public funding is almost a kind of philosophical thing amongst society. And really, I've thought about this quite a lot. And I think there is a a belief in society that purely cosmetic surgeries should not be funded by the taxpayer and for the public. Um, But those surgeries are where the, the... the person has no um, discernible health problem and they're coming along without a problem but just to enhance their appearance. Uh, Whereas now we have good literature to show that people with gender incongruence Uh, and no access to surgery do have a health problem and they often do have significant um, impairment in their ability to have a healthy and full life. And we know that doing the surgery improves those problems. And and so that's very um, much what would normally be provided in the taxpayer-funded healthcare system, whether that's in the public hospitals or whether it's in the private hospitals with Medicare rebates. And, for example, the same applies for um, breast reconstruction after mastectomy. We use breast implants in that scenario, uh, but it's to rebuild a breast after somebody's had a breast removed for breast cancer and it's not a direct treatment for the breast cancer but we know from research studies that it it makes an enormous difference to people's lives and to people's health and so society says it's okay to provide that um, as as part of the healthcare system. What is your hope for the future of gender-affirming care in Australia? That's a good question. Look, I think I would hope in in an ideal scenario that there would be access to services throughout Australia and what that might look like is there could be one, um, that there could be... uh, services in the both the public and the private hospitals of each state in Australia. And I think that that is not an unreasonable goal. I think that it should be uh, flexible 
it should be patient-centred and it should take account of uh, local um, factors. So if you're wanting to provide a gender-affirming surgery service in Darwin, then it's really important that you consider the lens of, you know, distance for follow-ups and perhaps you would use more virtual consultations or virtual multidisciplinary teams because of the the distances. And likewise, you would ensure that you were thinking about the intersectionality between being Aboriginal and um, being trans or the or First Nations. So I think that um, it's important that we don't uh, produce a one-size-fits-all model that doesn't fit anybody very well. I think we have to have inbuilt flexibility um, that will allow um, a, a right fit for every Australian. And that starts with listening to what trans people want as well, right? Yeah, well, what we've uh, recently done actually on the 2nd of uh, December, we ran a really fantastic event called the Australian Gender Affirming Surgery Roundtable. And uh, we brought together um, people with lived experience of being trans as well as GPs, endocrinologists, sexual health physicians, surgeons, gynaecologists, um, policy people, to really look at um, what everybody thinks will work and and what um, the trans people themselves feel is appropriate. Is there a recording of that available by any chance? Look, we're we're working on it. I, we'll, we'll be producing a report um, on that soon, um, and and it's really exciting because it's the first time that an event like that has ever taken place, and and uh, you can imagine getting consensus in in that arena was really an interesting process. Yeah, I can imagine. Thank you so much for coming on today, Nicola. It's been great to talk to you. Great. Well, thank you, Ash. And I think it's, you know, I think for for any trans people listening, I think there are still a lot of bureaucratic hurdles to go, unfortunately, and um, we're not quite there yet. But I think it's an exciting time. I think that the mood is out there to, to change things for the better and to legitimize the care that people need it's important to know that there are people out there who are in your court and who are fighting for you yeah absolutely